Our reading today is from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. Oh boy! Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, "Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who ascends from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. This message is about the necessity of the born-again experience. And, and by experience, I simply mean that you must, it must become a reality for you that you must be born again by the Spirit of God. He must make you anew. It is not necessary for you to pray a sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer, which you may know of in our culture, does not produce the born-again experience. 
I want you to understand plainly that the scriptures teach there is no ritual that you can perform which can cause God to birth you by the Holy Spirit. If there was, there would have been no need for the cross. What Jesus did in going to the cross, as he explains in this passage, and we're going to highlight, was a necessary step for you to be able to believe. That is what Jesus Christ did on the cross opened up a doorway, a gateway, so to speak, for your belief in him, your trust in him. And and it, if it wasn't the case, we would have absolutely no hope. That's kind of the overview of what we're going to talk about today. I want to look at five elements of today's passage. And, and all through the while, we're going to be talking about how this relates to this season of Lent, where we intentionally look at our sin, the sin that's in our life. We intentionally go after and uh, go after it in, a, in an intentional way to make war against it. Uh, by the Spirit of God, not not in any effort of our flesh. But I want to show how you, if you are finding yourself unable to war against sin, it could be the case that you have never been born again. It is possible to attend church your entire life and outwardly be doing everything the right way, but inwardly you are a hypocrite. If you are finding yourself completely powerless in this season of Lent, may I suggest to you, it is because you are dead. Dead men tell no tales, so they say. Dead men also don't do anything else. They don't do anything at all. And what Jesus says concerning the born-again experience presupposes, there's that word if you were here in our Sunday school hour, it presupposes that you are in a condition that isn't life. And I don't know about you, there's either non-existence or there's death. Those are the only two states that we have that aren't called life. There's either non-existence or death. And so you need God to do something to you, for you, that you can't produce on your own, which he calls being born again by the Spirit. So we're going to look at these five elements today. Citizenship in the kingdom of God. That is, what is the kingdom of God? What does it mean to have eternal life? Jesus uses this phrase, and so often I think we have perverted what the phrase eternal life means from what Jesus testified of it. We're going to look at the new birth as Jesus demonstrates. We're going to look at its elements and some of it, the descriptions that he gives uh, concerning how it, how it happens. We're going to look at the necessity of the cross that Jesus Christ himself said that it was necessary. He must be lifted up And the reason why it is necessary is because of what it purchased for us. We're going to look at God's loving plan. We're going to briefly, although this is the most popular verse in at least the Western world, we're only going to briefly be able to mention John 3.16. John 3.16, quoted out of context, is dangerous. And the reason it is dangerous is because it is promoted and, and put forward before people who don't understand what it means, they're liable, they're uh, not liable, but they're easily able to pervert it. They're easily able to twist it from its original intention. This passage, though it vindicates God's love, and certainly we do not wish to ever speak against God's love, it also vindicates his judgment. That is the evilness and darkness of men's hearts who do not come to know the truth. And then finally, we're going to look at the judgment, which we just referenced. That is men are evil, men love darkness, And the judgment that came when Jesus came was that we did not turn to him. We did not all 
turn to him. If men were basically good and Jesus arrives on the scene, then men should have flocked to him. But the case is, it's necessary that he comes because no men are good. All men are evil. And because of that, he comes to redeem. And so God's love is upheld, but the justice of God and also the evilness of man is also upheld. Quoting John 3.16 out of context is dangerous because it allows those who do not have any training in the scripture to consider possibilities that aren't present in the intention of the scriptures. So we're going to look at those five elements. The first thing I want to highlight is Nicodemus comes in verse three, in verse one of John chapter three, uh, verse two, sorry. It says that he comes by night. He didn't come openly. He didn't come at a time when other men could see him. He, he was concerned about his reputation. He does this by night. We know from Paul that those who do their sinning, those who do their drinking, do it at night. The reason why, as we saw in our uh, series on John last, uh, last time we were here in this passage, is men love to hide in darkness. If they didn't, they would come into the light and their deeds would be demonstrated as righteous, which what is what Jesus talks about. And so even Nicodemus, in attempting to approach Christ, testifies of his own sin. He's more concerned with what his fellow Pharisees say than what the Son of God says or has to say about his life. Nicodemus comes and posits him a series of questions, and Jesus kind of does this little cut off at the pass. It is, it's, it's, it's as if Jesus runs around behind Nicodemus's line of questioning and just interrupts it. Jesus asks the question, uh, he, he begins to kind of promote that Nicodemus acknowledges Jesus as a prophet, and Jesus then just cuts him off at the knees. It's beautiful. Nicodemus is a proof in this very chapter that men are evil. And so this entire message, uh, this entire passage rather, testifies of the necessity of an experience by which we come into the kingdom of God. It's impossible to see the kingdom of God by the flesh. Jesus says that you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And that both means perceive, enter, and distinguish between what is righteous and what is not righteous. Inside the kingdom of God are righteousness, peace, and joy, which Paul teaches in Romans. Outside the kingdom of God, then, are not righteousness, peace, and joy, but rather licentiousness, iniquity, strife, anger, malice, all of the sins which Paul enumerates again and again. And so to enter into the kingdom of God or to perceive the kingdom of God or to recognize God's reign is to have your eyes opened. And to have your eyes opened, it must be done for you. There is never a a situation in which you can imagine a blind person healing themselves of their blindness. It's, It's impossible. And so, uh, at least metaphorically or philosophically speaking, I'm not saying that someone couldn't get, you know, 300 years from now, uh, you know, digital contact lenses of, of some sort. But it's in this, in this context, the blindness is spiritual blindness. And so men are unable to see. And if they're unable to see, they're unable to enter. The kingdom of God is inaccessible to all of sinful man all of mankind, because he is dead in his trespasses and sins. As we mentioned before, dead men tell no tales, and they also don't do anything else. Dead men stay dead. And if someone is near death, if you, let's say Jesus is 
out on a limb here, if you think that, let's just presuppose, maybe man is just severely weakened, beaten, laying bloody on the ground. Men who are that far gone also don't walk themselves into a hospital, and they certainly don't heal themselves. If man is to have any knowledge of God, God absolutely must open his eyes. Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This, of course, is in harmony with John 1. Those who believed in him, he gave the right to become sons of God. The right to become. Rights are not taken. Rights are granted. You do not have unalienable rights because the government of the United States gives them to you. They are rights given to you by God. They're not rights that you take, although you may assert them and you may defend them. They are not rights that you manifest. You don't make them because rights, that's not what rights are. The privileges are that. You have the privilege to drive. You have the privilege to do a certain number of things. You have the privilege to vote. And those can be suspended if you're arrested, if you're a criminal, if you're tried in a court, et cetera, et cetera. But rights, that is, those things which are inalienable to you, are dispensed from God. They're given. It's a grace. So those who receive the right to become children of God are those who trust in Jesus' name name. And that's what this passage again says in harmony with John chapter one. Those who are born of the spirit enter into the kingdom of God. It's impossible to be born of the spirit and not enter the kingdom of God because the Holy Spirit's presence and the reign of God's kingdom are synonymous. They're two overlapping spheres. If you've ever seen what's called a Venn diagram, they're completely overlapping. They're the same circle. Entrance into the kingdom of God, therefore, as we've stated, is God's gift bestowed on us. It is not something that you seize. I've never heard of someone who takes a gift. Gifts are given. They're not taken. And if you do take a gift, it's not a gift. It's theft. (laughs) So much of the language of our culture and entitlements, and they call them benefits. They're not benefits. For anything to be a benefit... To you, it has to be first taken from me or vice versa. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you are receiving benefits. They're not gifts. The new birth then is to enter the kingdom of God and it's to be born by the will of God. Naturally speaking, children are not born of their own will. We have a wonderful, beautiful new testimony. Alethea Anastasia Hager is here in our presence. She was just born this last week. And let me tell you something, she didn't come by her own will. She was a product of someone else's will, namely Nathan and Tiffany's, to be quite explicit. You do not create yourself. And therefore, the metaphor of the new birth necessitates, if you follow it out logically, that you do not choose to be born again. You do not create this reality. It is given to you. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born Uh, when he is old. Now here Nicodemus is demonstrating, though he's a Pharisee, though he's a teacher of the law, he's actually quite dense. And that's not, if Nicodemus became a Christian after this experience, that wouldn't be an insult to him. And it shouldn't sound insulting because he is thinking naturally. The reason we know he's thinking naturally is he asks a natural question. Jesus answered verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless his Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The natural mind cannot understand the things of God, Paul says in Corinthians 
And so you are not able to hear Jesus's testimony concerning your state when he tells you, you must be born again and have it make any sense unless you understand by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is gracious to open up our ears at the presentation of the gospel. Nicodemus rejects Christ's testimony and inquires, how is this just? He says, how can this be? If you want to think about it another way, it's how is this possible? Or over and over again, Paul uses the phrase, may it never be, or or uh, he asks these sort of rhetorical questions. Should I continue to sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. That's the same idea that Nicodemus is saying here. How can these things be? Nicodemus is unable to see the means or the method by which the new birth happens, and also the possibility, that is, how can this be right? If men cannot come to God unless they be born again, then how are men to be held accountable? How are they to be judged? And Jesus does not give in to that temptation. So many of the the people alive today, they harbor anger and bitterness against God. They hear of the coming judgment. And because they love their sin rather than righteousness, they justify themselves in stating, well, if God must do the, do the salving work, salvific work or saving work, then how can we be judged? And Jesus doesn't give any leeway to that sort of question. Jesus then goes on to testify that if you were worthy of a righteous judgment, you would come to him. When Israel rebels against God in this, uh, Jesus makes a reference in this passage. When they rebel against him, if you're not familiar with the story, we'll just cover it really quickly. God sends out these fiery serpents among the people. Imagine, if you will, huge group of people, thousands and thousands, traveling in the desert. They all conspire together to speak against God, saying that God has brought us out here to die instead of staying in our wonderful state of slavery in Egypt. And then God, because of his righteousness, judges them to correct them from their error. He sends out these fiery serpents. The fiery serpents go among the people and they bite. And I just have to believe that God directing the fiery serpents told them how to bite and which ones to bite. Those who were truly the most guilty among the group, though all the people were guilty. It says that the people of God, it doesn't say individuals, although there was selective judgment because not everyone died. God, because of his great mercy, wished to foreshadow, to pre-image, to image forth the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, instructed Moses to create a pole and on that pole to craft a bronze serpent, which speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, you may have a little bit of difficulty with that, but Jesus over and over again describes how his disciples are to be uh, among the world how they're to go and preach the gospel. He says to them, be innocent as doves and be what? Shrewd or subtle or crafty as serpents. Serpents do not always, but mostly do not always image evil. And so the bronze serpent image forths Jesus. It is a demonstration uh, beforehand. It's a symbol by which God chose to act, which prefigured Christ. No one has ascended in heaven, verse 13, except the, the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Many people read this and think to themselves, well, wait, I thought Elijah went into heaven. Elijah did not ascend into heaven. He was taken up in a chariot. It is totally different. To ascend into heaven is to go there on your own merit. That's why ascension is such a beautiful day 
of celebration in our calendar. But no one has ascended into heaven. That is, no one's permitted. The gate is closed to all evil. And Jesus then says that the only one who has been in heaven is the one who descended. Then he goes to reference the story which we just uh, highlighted. The reason that Jesus Christ must be lifted up is verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Eternal life, we understand and know, is this, knowing the Father and the one whom he sent. So eternal life is not speaking of simply heaven or hell at the end of your life, although it includes that. Eternal life is present knowing of the Father and of the Son. And if you do not know the Father, you do not know the Son. And those who come to the Father only come to the Father by the Son, as in the Son is the only avenue or way. And so Jesus is testifying why he must be lifted up. And the reason that he gives is so that people can believe. If there is no lifting up, there is no believing. There's no trusting. None of us could have come to God on our own merit. And we were all like the people of Israel speaking against God. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. Adam and Eve decide in their own words, in their own estimation, to transgress God's law. And we, whether you understand this or not, were all somehow present in them. That is, they represented us just as Christ represents us now, those who have placed their trust in him. And so Christ must be lifted up on a cross that we looking up to him might be saved and delivered from evil. The same thing happens today. Fiery serpents go out among the people and they bite and devour and destroy people's lives. And upon looking only to Jesus Christ, the one who was lifted up into a place between heaven and earth, are men saved. It's a necessity. So what we're celebrating, what we're preparing for in Lent as we're marching towards Holy Week, where we remember the Lord's sufferings, the Lord's execution by the hands of evil men who rejected him, we are not doing that in a morose way, but rather a realistic way. These aren't rose-colored glasses, so to speak. It is a sober thing, and yet it is a glorious thing. Many who hear the testimony of Christ in this passage that you must be born again, and by that I mean that you are unable to do anything about your state, recoil against that saying that God must be a tyrant. But in this passage, God is vindicated as the one who's acting in love. This is the, the... the great thing about the fact that John 3.16 is the most popular verse in today's culture, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, and so the great thing is that God's love in this passage is vindicated. It's celebrated. It's heralded. Jesus says that God loved the world, therefore he gave. If God did not love the world, logically, he would not have given his son. Because of God's love, he put forth his son. I think it's dangerous to make John 3.16 your favorite verse without 17 through 19 because they testify of the necessity. If Jesus is just one teacher or prophet among a whole uh, swath of gurus, that is, you know, Muhammad, Buddha, Siddhartha, whoever you want, Dr. Phil, (laughs) certainly Oprah, (laughs) or anyone else who promotes their own sort of spirituality or mystical living or healthiness or putting everything in your life together, apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, then there was no need to give him. 
If there was another means, it would have been a tragic waste to give him. And there wasn't. And because God is a God of love, just as much as a God of judgment and wrath, he gave his son so that we might have a way. God is demonstrated in this passage as acting in love. God is not to be accused of wrongdoing. If God didn't love the the world, he would not have given his son. And by that, we do not mean the world and the world's system. We simply mean those who are in the world and his created order. God wishes to take it back from the usurper. Man is the one who rebelled and went astray, not God. But God has provided a means of salvation that men would believe on the name of the only son of God. It is not God who is indicted in this passage, but rather man. That's why John 3.16 being the most popular verse can also be a danger because it fails to take into account the context which indicts men. If, if John 3.16 was some other verse and it, was, it included any sort of judgment in that verse, although no verse can ever be said to be deficient, but the versification, the way it's broken up is not authoritative. It's just a, a handy reference for us to be able to turn to places. When John wrote this book, he didn't insert chapter and verse as if to divorce an idea in verse 16 from an idea in verse 19. They stand together or they fall apart. Far from being an indictment against God, the condemnation of man is an indictment against men. Men who do not believe in the Son of God are already condemned. People often say, why does God send people to hell? As if, you know, it's his choice alone to to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, then how can he find fault with anyone? I want to present to you the idea that before God made a way of escape, all of us were destined to perish. It is not God who ran away in the garden. It's Adam who ran away in the garden. Loving darkness, men don't come to Christ. That's what Jesus is, is stating in this passage. He's saying that if you loved righteousness, you would come to me. But because you love darkness, you don't. And so men are on trial here, not God. Those who are born of God come to him and are vindicated as trusting in him. They are not vindicated of their own righteousness, but rather of a work that he does. What I love about this passage and what makes it so hard to preach at the same time is that both the necessity of God's work in the new birth is highlighted. And then at the end, Jesus describes some of the reality by which men either do not come or do come to him. He says that those who do come, come and are vindicated, demonstrating that what they've done in verse 21 has been carried out in God. Now that makes sense if you understand what the book of Philippians talks about when it says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling The reason we do it with fear and trembling is because it is God who is at work in us, both to will, that is to cause us to want to do it, and to work, the actual energy to do the the saying no to sin, the saying yes to righteousness. And so Jesus Christ demonstrates a stark contrast. Those who love darkness do not come to him. Those who love light, because he's recreated them after his image, do come to him. It's not as if Jesus says, you must be born again, and then at the back end of the chapter, there's this kind of other way by which things are understood. It may be a different perspective on the situation, but it's certainly not trying to contradict itself. 
So the idea that men at the end of this chapter are demonstrated as righteous by coming to him does not mean that they are righteous in their own accord, but rather that it has been carried out in God and therefore in his kingdom, which we know from the beginning of the chapter can only happen if you are born again. What, what probably scares me the most about the state of the church today is so many of us We've created a different understanding of the born-again experience. We think that to be born again means to respond after hearing a message like this, to come up to an altar call, to pray with someone. Maybe there's tears, maybe a commitment card. But the born-again experience is not something that can be manufactured. In verse 8, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. Isn't that true? I don't think no matter how much men... uh, progress in our technological endeavors, even over millennia, I don't think we'll ever wield so much power as to determine where the wind goes. The wind goes where God sends it, through the various ways, clouds, sunlight, the earth, the season, where we're at in the, in the calendar. But the, the wind goes where it wishes. Jesus is saying this is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit's action. The Holy Spirit moves upon those that he wants to. He says this explicitly, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is why it is so necessary for you to be filled with the Spirit if you're to be a Christian and to to promote the gospel, that is to share the gospel with your friends. You must be in tune with the Holy Spirit so as to participate with him while you're ministering or while you're sharing the gospel. But even that level of following the Lord, even that level of walking in step with the Spirit cannot create the new birth experience. It is plainly stated in this passage as God's decision. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That condemnation existed before the Son of God came, And the judgment which rested upon all of us was uniform. It was universal. It wasn't as if the most evil among us were judged, and then Jesus came, and all the righteous were then vindicated. All of man was evil. Jesus came, and then some were demonstrated as being born again. Now, that, of course, does not mean by any stretch that those Old Testament saints died in futility, but rather they were looking forward to the time where Christ would be made manifest. Loving darkness, men do not come to him. That is the central message that I want to convince you of, that everyone had gone astray, as the book of Romans teaches in Psalms, uh, referencing Psalms, everyone had gone astray and God made it possible for some to be saved. That is not an indictment against God, but rather an indictment against man and a demonstration or a testimony against the the evilness of sin. We have a a very hard time understanding just how deceitful and evil and malicious sin is. That's what is being taught here by Jesus Christ. The judgment against man is that they loved darkness rather than light. Verse 19 The judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why John 3.16 is the most popular verse and not John 3.19. If John 3.19 was the most popular verse, we would be in a revival, but it isn't. One day it will be. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That is the reason why, if you were here in the Sunday school hour, when uh, my dad talked about the idea of uh, all men being liars, all men running from God, running from the truth, that's where we get that idea. We don't that's not something that he made up. That's not something that Christianity manufactures. This is the testimony of the only Son of God, who himself is truth. And to, to look at that and say that's harsh, or that is really intense, or to, to have some sort of difficulty with it, that is, it, it's, it's okay to grapple with the question but it's certainly not okay to come down on the wrong side, which is to say that Jesus was overstating his case. This isn't hyperbole. This is rather just plain, simple truth. That's why I think it was so wonderful and so easy to listen to Jesus Christ is because he didn't mince words. So much of our gospel presentation and the way that we even talk about Christianity, the way that we even give a defense for our faith is so muddled. It's well, Christianity works for me. I was born in a Christian home and I just went with it. Those arguments are horrible. The vindication of the gospel is that I was dead in sin and actively rebelling against God and God at the proper time for my life, according to his will, stopped me dead in my tracks and made me new. I can testify to the truth of Jesus Christ's claim that all men are liars, that all men need reborn, that all men are dead in their sins, because I know it to be true for me. And I also know that he does not lie. I'm sure many of you can think back, even if you were born in a Christian home, if you truly have come to know him, you can think back to a time or a way of living in which you yourself experienced this, that you were actively running from God. Now, thanks be to God, we uh, raise our children in a godly way so as to present them with the gospel over and over again. It's not necessary that you have some sort of, you know, train wreck, exploding rebellion against God. You don't have to slide off into the abyss, and backslide into the gates of hell. You don't have to do that as a Christian or as, a, as someone growing up in a Christian home, but it very often is the case, especially in the way that we raise our children today. That being said, you can still uh, grow up in a Christian home and recognize the truth of Jesus Christ's testimony in your own heart if you come, have come to know him. That is why God sent his son. What we're getting ready to celebrate, the death of the son of God, Although it's grim, although it's mournful, although we recognize our own culpability, our own responsibility in his death, we celebrate it because it bought for us the ability to believe in him. And that belief that we place on him, that trust which we place in him, is only possible after we've been born again, made anew. As we celebrate this Lenten season, we see our desperate condition and our sin, which is highlighted, we see it as corrupting to the point that we had absolutely no part in our redemption. You must be born again. It's not optional. It's not a progression. You must be born again in order to enter or to see the kingdom of God. If that would be our end, if, we, if he had not come, we would be absolutely hopeless. But that isn't the end of the story. The end of the story is that God at the proper time sent his son and his son coming died on a bloody cross 
That's why we call it Good Friday, because it opened up the gate of heaven to us. It is a good day, although it's a terrible day at the same time. The fact that it took the death of the Son of God should testify to us the necessity both of the new birth and of the complete evil of sin. That's what we celebrate. That's what we're getting ready for. That's why we take a whole season, just like Advent prepares us for Christmas, that's why we take a whole season to prepare us for Holy Week, for Good Friday and Easter. Not recognizing the necessity of Jesus Christ, that is, not understanding the depth of sin, makes Good Friday trivial and meaningless. Understanding, however, that it took the death of the Son of God re-highlights and re-emphasizes the grace of God and the love of God. It is not as if men are evil and that's the end of the story. Christ came, and because he came, there is something that you have been made able to do, that is to trust him. Though we are still plagued by temptation and weakness, which we readily see in this season, if you're doing any examination of your heart and soul at this time in, in the calendar, you see it clearly Though that is the case, it is not the end of the game. God is doing something in you by his Holy Spirit. And he, after making you new, is now refashioning you after the image of his son. That is what our faith teaches. When we get ready to enter into Holy Week, which is still a few weeks off, I want you to remember, hopefully, not this message, but the idea behind it that it really did take the death of the Son of God, him taking on our penalty, him opening a door of grace for us where it was closed before, him doing something that we could not have done ourselves. I want you to remember that idea when we get to Good Friday. So often we see pictures, um, certain movies, The Passion of the Christ would be one of them, and we get caught up with the actual gruesome detail of his death, that he was whipped and, and crucified and it was bloody and it was horrible. I don't in any way wish to diminish the terrible suffering that he took, uh, that he went through. In fact, that highlights even more how much his love uh, was poured out on us. It, it shined forth in that day. God was extremely glorious. But I don't want you to see the death of the Son of God as being something that was trivial or optional. I want you to see it as necessary. And Jesus's testimony to Nicodemus was that message. One of the greatest experiences in my life had to do with my return to the Lord after a time away from him. And we had talked really briefly about rebellion and, and going away from God. I want to just ask you, do you really know the Lord? And if you do not really know that the Lord has remade you, I want you to take, not, not this moment, but future moments this week, I want you to, to examine your heart and ask God to reveal to you, are you really trusting in him? Do you really believe it was necessary that you would be born again? Or have you just come to, to church today or or? for weeks of your life or years of your life, have you just come to look like you are righteous or have you really been made righteous by God? And being made righteous is simply this, that he, after rebirthing you in the Holy Spirit of God, 
He's recreated you, he's refashioned you, and he has set you upon a path by which walking by the Holy Spirit, you would shine brighter and brighter till the end of your days. I want you to examine in this season whether that's really true, because it, it can be the case. It often is the case that you are simply going through the motions and you don't recognize the preciousness of what we have, what our faith teaches, what it, what it highlights as being vital, necessary for the salvation of men, and also the grace which God has for us, the mighty love. Brothers and sisters, the gate of heaven is open because of Jesus Christ's death, and that's what we're preparing for in this season. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Your, your love, it's unthinkable. It's so beautiful that, that all men lied and rebelled against you and were violently running from you. Lord, you, you have chased us down by sending your son to come and rescue God, we confess readily that we had no part in our turning to you. It was by your providence alone that we would be born at this time to hear the gospel. Lord, we, we could have been, been born at any other time in history in any other context without the gospel. And Lord, we would have no hope. But we thank you. Your, your love is so great. God, I, I ask that today and and moving forward in this season of Lent, that you would convict us, that you would convince us of the necessity of your death. God, we we ask that you would give to us a spirit of of supplication, that, that we would eagerly seek you out with full faith, knowing that your son was true when he said, whoever believes. God, we pray for such faith. We know it's a a gift of grace from you, which we cannot manufacture. God, I ask that if, if any here are being drawn by you, Lord, that you would convince them of your great love, which knows no bounds, which gave everything. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a sense of your grace and glory, that, that we would see what's happening as we celebrate in Holy Week, that we would see it as being done for us, both necessary but not in a compulsory way that you freely gave. Lord, we ask that you would convince us of these truths in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.